This is the Extravagant Promises Podcast, and I'm your host, Gregory. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. This is a podcast about reckoning, recovery, and redemption. Tonight's episode is episode 21, Redemption Song. As always, before we start the podcast, I do want to go over a few things and remind my listeners of a few things. First, this is a recovery-based podcast and a podcast about the recovery community. It is not an AA meeting, and it is not intended to stand in the place of an AA meeting. If you are in the recovery community and you need just a helping hand or that candlelight out in the darkness, I hope this podcast can serve as that. But please, we strongly encourage all our listeners to participate in 12-step programs of your choice and to regularly attend meetings. Second, I'm not a mental health provider and nothing that's in this podcast should be taken as mental health counseling, therapy, or medical advice of any sort. Strongly encourage everyone in every listener and everyone in the program to have a mental health counselor, uh, therapist of some sort. And it is really remarkable how wonderful these folks can be and that medicine and psychology can help us live such wonderful lives. I often think it's, it's so sad that psychiatric help and psychological help and mental health is so stigmatized because we would never think twice about going to the doctor for, let's say, obesity or um, an ailment or anything that, that, that might be within our own control to some degree. Um, and of course, we would never think twice to go for um, something that's not in our control, cancer or anything like that. And yet, mental health, which I believe is not something that we can control, it's, it's something that is um, intergenerational, it's genetic, it's biological, it's chemical, it's all of those things. Um, and yet there's such a stigma around seeing a counselor. Um, I can go to the, the doctor for poison ivy, but I can't go to the doctor for being beaten as a child. <clears throat> and that is, uh, in terms of uh, the way insurance and society looks at it, and that is just a terrible thing. But uh, So I strongly encourage everyone to have a mental health component to their medical regimen and their daily practice and everything um, to the best you can. Third, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Please protect my anonymity. Please protect yours. Please respect everyone's. Um, I absolutely encourage everyone to reach out to me on the internet at Extravagant Promises Podcast on Instagram or Extravagant Promises Podcast at gmail.com. I will answer every question. I will I will respond 
but um, please uh, respect my anonymity, and I will try to do the same. I, I no, I won't try to do. The, I will do the same. I will never out anyone, um, and I will never break someone's anonymity, and, and um, that's a sacred promise. Uh, fourth and finally, this is a free podcast. It will always be free. I will never accept donations or solicit money or advertising of any sort. This is a um, this podcast is my form of service back to my fellow travelers and and journeymen and women and and those suffering inside and outside the rooms. So I hope you enjoy tonight's podcast. It is 1979. I'm not certain of the date. I'm not exactly certain of the year. It may be 1979. It may be 1980. I know that it's nighttime. I know that it's dinner time. I know that there is company in the house. I know that my parents are present. <clears throat> I know that my grandmother is present. I am in the kitchen. I know that Ding is present. And I'm in the kitchen and I'm dancing. I say dancing, but what I really mean is performing. And what I really mean is entertaining. I entertain because that is my personality. I have adopted a comedic attitude and persona. But I'm also often called upon by my mother to perform in one form or another for people. To make people laugh to speak in a foreign language, to play my instrument or violin, to do things so that she can show guests how much better of a parent she is than they are, how important she must be because her child is more talented and more gifted than theirs. I am not doing a formal performance, but I am entertaining. I can feel the hardwood floors underneath my feet. I am sitting in a recently remodeled kitchen with a new fangled concept in the kitchen called an island. It has burners on it. It has a butcher block top. You can sit at it, at it, and you can eat at it. You can cook on it. Ding is on one side of it because Ding controls the kitchen. She's on the sink side of the island. I'm on the same side as she is. I do not know where my little brother is. My little brother is interesting, and he's tough. He's very small at this age, and he's skinny, but he's tough. He does his own thing, as you would say it. 
I am entertaining the people who are there. Today, they're just, their faces are just blurs to me. Today, I cannot tell you who else was there. But I can tell you that my mother was there. I can tell you that my father was there. I can tell you that my grandmother was there. That probably means my grandfather was there as well. It probably means there were others, but I cannot remember them. I am waving my arms about and goofing off in a manner intended to entertain these adults and make them laugh. I am laughing. And suddenly I do something that makes all the laughter stop. My arm comes down in one of my movements and it hits one of the instruments, one of the utensils that is inside one of the pots. The utensil falls to the floor and whatever's in the pot is spilled onto the stove. It is not a dramatic spill. It is not a big mess. But it is a catastrophe. Spills do not happen in our house. Spills only happen because you are bad. You are negligent. You are lazy. You are stupid. A spill has happened, and I immediately know that it is a catastrophe. I am in trouble. I immediately make eye contact with her. I run. I run down the stairs, the short stairs to the landing in the breakfast room, and I run to the right through a glass hallway into a small living room and through an archway into my bedroom that I share with my brother. In between our twin beds behind a desk is a bathroom. It has a sliding door. The kind of door that locks once it is fully closed there is a push button brass lock up near the edge of the door. Once the door is fully closed, you push that brass device. It folds open and the door is locked. I run into, I run into the bathroom. I do not lock the door. I know not to lock the door. <coughs> what is about to happen to me will be bad. <coughs> what is about to happen to me will be much worse if I lock the door. I pretend I'm I I'm a, I am <coughs> excuse me. I am a few steps ahead of her.
far enough ahead of her, in fact, that I pretend to look into the mirror to adjust a contact lens. That is another memory that makes me recall what year it might be. That's why I know that it's 1979 or 1980. She's not far behind me. She comes into the bathroom and slams the sliding door shut and she locks it. She proceeds to beat me with her hands. She has rings on. She does not normally punch me, but she slaps me with her full hand as hard as she can. She hits me and she almost always hits me in the face. She is fond of hitting me with her palm and then backhanding me with the ring side of the fingers. It is natural for me to defend myself, to raise my arms, to try to block her. That, however, is just as bad as if I lock the door. If I raise my arms, if I grab her, if I hit back, the beating will be much worse, much more severe, and much more prolonged. I know this. It has happened to me before. I know that I will take a beating. It has happened to me before. I know that I can take a beating because it has happened to me before. It seems in my memory that there is chaos. She must be a little bit over 40 years of age, maybe not even late 30s. I'm 11 or 12, maybe 13 at most. I have not reached puberty yet. I have not grown yet. I'm not big. I'm not strong. I know this, but I know that I can take it. And take it is what I do. I can hear scream, her shrieking at me. I can hear screams. I hear my grandmother yelling my mother's name, banging on the door, begging her to stop, begging her to open the door. At some point, and I do not have a clear recollection of this, she either grabs the back of my head and slams my forehead into the door jam, or she throws me into the door somehow so that my forehead hits the door jam. 
I am crying, I am sure. Probably more like a whimper. I don't recall whether I asked her to stop. In all the times that I was beaten, I don't know that I ever asked her to stop. I don't know if that was just one more thing that I was taught never to do because it would just mean that the beating would continue. She opens the door. She grabs me, drags me a few feet to my brother's side of the room. His closet is open. It has a sliding door as well. I'm thrown into that closet and it is shut. I know there is talking, I know there is yelling, but I can't tell you today what was said. I'm cowering in the dark. That is what I remember. At some point in this darkness in my mind, my brother is also in the closet. I don't know how he got there. Perhaps he was already there, hiding. Perhaps he came in to help me. Perhaps he was forbidden to come in and help me and did so anyway. I do not know and I do not recall. What I do know is that the moment he saw my face and the moment that he saw what had been done to my forehead and the lump that now adorned my head. He brought his hand to his mouth and immediately started to weep, deep sobbing. I knew it must be bad. He cried and he held my shoulders. And in his squinched up eyes and the tears flowing, I knew it must be bad because he does not cry much. He's not a crybaby. He is tough. I know this. I begin to cry more forcefully. I'm allowed to cry now. I'm crying because he's crying. I'm crying because he is sad. I want him to not be sad. I want him to be safe. I know this. I can take it. I know this. I look at him and he tells me, I'm going to kill her. I can't take it. I'm going to kill her. I know that he means it. 
I know that if I asked him to do it, he would do it. I do not want that. I do not want him to hurt. I do not want him to be sad. I do not want him to be scared. I know this. I tell him no. And I'm crying more forcefully. No. I'm tough, I tell him. I'm tough, I tell him. I can take it, I tell him. I can take it. I can take it. What you just heard was my recitation of an event that happened to me in junior high school that was, for whatever reason, particularly memorable to me. I suppose you could say that it was particularly memorable because it seems pretty vicious when I relate it to other people, as I just did. But in a lot of ways, it was nothing new for me, as you can tell. And it was something that continued after that. But there were certain... notable memories of the event that make it stand out for me. I think the reason one of one of th this beating among others stands out like a few others was because my grandparents were there and they knew what everyone knew what she was doing to me and that she would do that. Um But but I remember my grandmother beating on the door, screaming. Let him go. Don't do that. You know, I remember that. And I think that's the only time, really, that I remember her being so involved in that way. And I remember my brother, obviously, being traumatized by it. And I, I remember the lump on my head being really unusually large. And um, I may be wrong because, you know, it's been uh, 40 years. Um, but I remember it being like greenish blue, like there were like like a greenish kind of a hue to the lump on my head. Maybe it was more blue than green, but, you know, your memory plays tricks on you sometimes, so... But it was it was it wasn't like big and round. It was, as I recall, it was long. It was it was kind of more finger shaped, you know, like like a rectangle or oblong, you know. And it was and it was big. And my brother saw that, and that's when he started crying so strongly. And he said those things, and I I have no doubt in my mind that he would have done it if if I'd let him or egged him on. That's how, that's how bad it was. Um, 
you may wonder why do I bring that up. Well, I am, um, as part of the, you know, a lot of us in recovery are victims of child abuse. And a lot of our resentments, our addiction, I mean, if you listen to a psychologist like Gabor Mate, you know, he would say that a lot of our addictions, if not all of our addictions, are are the result of childhood trauma and certain non-attachment and things like that. And And I believe that. Um, you know, at the same time, um, a lot of our resentments, <laughs> resentment is sort of like the, 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 the gold mine that, that addiction lives in, you know, that it's, it's the, it's the, the golden corral buffet that, that addiction gets fat in, you know, is resentment. Resentment is so big and broad and you know I'm, I'm actually here to tell you a story and sing you a song of redemption tonight um, I just realized you know I haven't podcasted in a little bit because I've been traveling a bunch and I've had some some real resentments crop up but I realized that um, you know this is the fifth anniversary of the beginning, the real beginning of, of, of the, the formal part and the ugly part of my divorce proceedings. Um, it marks the fifth anniversary of me leaving the home. And, you know, I always said, like, I wouldn't wish what happened to me on anybody. And I have a lot of resentment about what happened to me. But it wasn't really until this morning that I thought about how unbelievably resilient I am and how unbelievable my life is now today. I mean, it really is. My life is fantastic today. You know, sometimes I say, well, God, I wish I could live like this and be like this when I was in my 20s. But, you know, that wasn't God's plan for me. You know, he didn't give me more than I could shoulder, obviously. That's hard. It's hard for anybody to think, well, you know, when 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 is child abuse part of God's plan? I, you know, that that's not that's not my place to tell you, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know. But it was. And it was for me. You know, and I learned then that I could take it. And what I've learned and I thought about this morning is I could take it. And, you know, and I can survive and I can thrive. And actually, I can finally say that I wouldn't change a thing about the last five years. It's been a glorious, uplifting, inspiring journey. And I never thought I would say those words. I never thought you could pay me to say that kind of, oh, yeah, I'm glad. You know, that just sounded like Hallmark greeting card stuff. But I can say it now. You know, here I am. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some of those resentments and how it played out because, you know, I would like to tell you, I'd like to tell you a story about how a young man, you know, fought back and 
and learned to love his his abuser and and taught them a lesson and they they learned how to be good people and things like that and that's just not what happened i mean i i met abuse with i'm going to prove to you why why i'm actually worth loving you know as my lawyer said you know in my in my divorce proceedings after i'd given my wife every single thing that i ever owned and promised her just an incredible lifestyle and all these things and and the only thing that she didn't get was my professional degree which she had nothing to do with i didn't even know her when i graduated from graduate school and i gave her everything and i was willing to give her everything because i'm a pleaser i'm codependent and that's what i do and that you know i can take it i just wanted to be out of that marriage so badly that i was like well maybe if i give you everything you'll spare me just destroying me and you'll spare me all the horrible things that that happened and as my lawyer said is you're just you're just taking t-bones and giving them to a tyrannosaurus rex and that Tyrannosaurus Rex doesn't say, thank you for the T-bone. That was great. I'm going to treat you nicely now. What it says is, give me another T-bone. Give me another steak. And so as I came through life, you know, sitting there and bringing accolade after accolade to my parents' feet and trying to tell them what great parents they were and telling my father how much I admired him and all these things, you know, I never once really saw any true acts of character beyond a certain age, that's for sure. I never once heard either one of them really express gratitude for anything. I never once heard them express gratitude for me. I was a burden. I was my parents' shitty life. I am the embodiment of it. I am shitty. And I'm the embodiment of their shitty life. And they could have had a good life if it weren't for my existence is the way that I looked at it. And the way I was told. So, you know, I'd like to say that, oh, you know, I, that, but, you know, mine is my story. You know, I achieved a lot. <laughs> But not for me. I achieved things because I was trying to prove something to them. I was trying to give something to them. Maybe if I win this award, they'll tell me I'm a good child. You know, maybe I'll be loved. I've talked about this before, you know. And then that ended up, you know, with me marrying the only woman who my parents ever approved of. And... Um, and I don't really want to get into all that because there are just some, some wounds that are there and some truths that are there that, that I'm just not ready to, to speak about. I may never be, and I certainly don't want to cause more harm than I've already caused. But what I can say is that when I had the temerity at 46 years old to say that I'm no longer interested in being married it is not a, a relationship that works 
it's become toxic and abusive and I want out. You know, these people who beat me, well, one beat me and one watched the other beat me and and then told me, <laughs> I mean, this is the best is, you know, I've thought about this because I've got a very, very good friend who suffered child abuse at the hands of a man, his father. And I asked him not long ago, I said, did anybody ever tell you that he loved you? You know, having watched him beat you, did they ever say, oh, he loves you? You know, as you whimpered, as you came back from the hospital, as you were crying, as you were scared, did they ever say, did they tell you you were crazy and that, oh, he loves you? That's how he shows love is hitting you, humiliating you, demeaning you, interfering with your relationships. That's how he shows love. Hell no. It's never happened. I mean, in his case, in my buddy's case, it's, it's amazing that that man isn't behind bars. But, you know, I had the good fortune to be beaten by a woman. You know, so, uh, yeah, and I put that in, that's in uh, quotation marks around good fortune. But so I got, I got to be, you know, I get to be a pussy. I get to be a wimp. I get to be a man who got beaten by a woman. You know, who's going to believe that? And I got to have a man who's supposed to be the most important man in my life and protect me, tell me that, oh, she loves you. Your mother loves you. Oh, knock it off. You know, she's just, you know. So, yeah, I think they both are responsible. Maybe one day I'll find that he was more responsible than her because he was complicit in it and he had the strength and the power to stop it and never did. And you can tell I've got a lot of resentment about this. I mean, you hear it in my voice. I'm sure you can. When I read that and when I recite that, I mean, it's just, it's just a boiling rage. Um, you know, and, 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 and when I said, look, I'm, I'm not happy in my marriage, and, it, and it's, it's really unfixable, you know. And the response that I got was... Um, I got a lot of very aggressive. I mean, obviously, they can't kick my ass now, you know. I mean, they're feeble and weak. But they could try everything else. I got a letter from my mother saying that she was glad that all my relatives were dead because they'd be so disgusted with me because I wanted to get divorced. Uh, my father broke my confidences, went to my wife's lawyer and would tell her the things that I had tried to share with him in confidence. Um, you know, you've heard previous, I, I was, I would get texts and calls from my mother in the middle of the night, threatening me, telling me people were out looking for me and looking and, and watching me. They're watching you, you know? And then, um, you know, of course they were egging my wife on to ex-wife, thank God now, you know, to threaten to come down to my workplace and, and where, quote, shit was going to get real, you know. And, and, and when I said, did you, did you tell her? Or did you know about this? And they, they laughed. Oh, we thought it was fun. We thought it was a good idea, you know, just to fuck with you. And obviously, you know, there's just a whole bunch of other things. But, but you know, if you... 
I would never have believed you at that time when I was down in that depth that my life would look like this. And so, you know, I wanted to just set that, that we're all children of God. We're all worthy of love, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm going to dive deep in future podcasts on this, but you know, you're carrying resentments. If you, you, you know, when you suffer trauma and I think there's something to be said for intergenerational trauma, that things that happen a generation or maybe beyond before can, can change the culture and the, and the, and the emotional, uh, environment that you're raised in, but then also, I think can change the genetic expression and your DNA and, and your, and your chemical com your, your chemical constitution when you, when, you know, I think that happens. I mean, maybe I'm just being way too naive here, but as I recall, if you fight the tuna fish too hard when you're bringing it in the boat, it'll, it's meat will be burned. There's a chemical, and they say that when you slaughter or when you harvest certain plants, if it's done in a certain type of way that's traumatic for the plant or the tissue, it will change the taste. You're going to tell me that that doesn't have some connection and you beat the shit out of a child, that that's not going to change that child's genetic expression in some way? That there's not some sort of cortisol and dopamine and hormones and all these other things that are going on in your brain and your body that are going to change the meat, so to speak? Well, I'm a believer in that. You know. I believe it. And then that's going to get passed on. You know, somehow that genetic modification will get passed on. But, you know, those resentments, they, they, they're, they're, they're like these just, it's like a pineapple you know like a if you can imagine an avocado seed that's a pineapple like piney and like a pine cone you know like just something nasty and it's inside you and that resentment it's just it's just just a core a black core you know and you just carry that you've just got to figure out a way to excise it and you just think well there's this black core I don't have attachment. I don't have anybody love me. I'm not worthy of love. I'm a bad. I'm bad. I am bad. I am sorry. I am ashamed. I'm shameful. I'm not someone who should even exist. I'm pathetic. I'm a loser. My mother used to like to call me Willie Loman as a child. The character in the movie Death of a Salesman. I mean, can you imagine telling your child that? And all seriousness, you're a loser. You're going to grow up to be a loser. You're already a loser. She would tell me that, she would say, when I leave your father, it's not going to be because of another man. You know, even though she was running around or whatever, you know, it, it's, it's going to be because, because he was too lenient with you children. Hmm, he was too lenient with you. It's what it was. I know this is, you know, it's like airing your dirty laundry, but, you know, bring it on, I suppose. I need to get it out. I need to, I need to show you the, that song of redemption. If you told me five years ago 
when I was nearing rock bottom, you know, when I felt like my whole world had collapsed around me, if you told me, listen, in five years, you're going to have everything you've always wanted. You're going to be sober. You're going to be serene. You're going to have the best relationship with your daughters that you've ever had. You're going to be professionally satisfied and have a great team around you at your business that you run and that you own. You're going to be financially stable with no debt of any kind. You're going to be honest. You're going to be kind. You're going to be decisive. You're going to be compassionate. You're going to have just gotten your brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that'll be for another episode. I would have said right on. But I didn't think those things were going to happen. I didn't have anyone telling me those things. I just knew that everything was horrible. And there were so many times when I was just wishing that I wouldn't wake up. And there were so many times when I thought about eating a gun and then eating a bullet. In fact, you know, a guy who worked for me had given me a really fancy Kimber 1911 that um, was kitted out, you know, like operator style, supposedly. And he was going to teach me how to shoot it and everything properly because I've never really had proper training on a handgun. And, um, you know, I said, listen, I don't want you to keep I, I don't want to I don't this is beautiful. I want you to keep it on your possession you know, in your possession and not in mine because I don't know how to operate it properly. I don't know how to use it. I don't know how to take care of it, which, you know, is somewhat true, somewhat not true. But, but the point being that I want, I said, I don't, I don't want my girls around it. You know, I, they might find, I don't, I don't have a proper place to store it, you know, this kind of thing. But what I really knew inside was if I've got this thing, I'm going to use it on myself. And, um, you know, maybe I didn't admit that to anybody, but I knew it inside. That's how bad things had been, had, had gotten. And, you know, I just, I just persevered, you know, and, and, and I did the work in the program. I got out of my own way when it came to work and finances and things like that. And I just, I did the next right thing. And slowly things just got better, you know, and it wasn't until this morning, I mean, of all times this morning when I was like, you know, now I can look at this and go, I'm going to do this the best way. I can't go back and redo the past five years and be like, I'm going to make the best five years of my life. But I can say that for the next five, you know, and say, I'm going to be a great parent. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be the kind of professional that is that that enjoys the hallmarks of the best of the profession you know i'm going to i'm going to 
manage my business affairs like a good businessman, like a man of courage and integrity. And and I've always done that, you know, with business, with integrity, but 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 certainly not necessarily with wisdom and frugality, you know, just kind of like willy-nilly, um, you know, and really have like that life worth living because I can take it. I know this. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the words serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. God, thank you for strengthening my hand. Thank you that my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. Please, tonight, if it is your will, will you strengthen the hand of the other sick and suffering souls here on this planet with us? Help give them that strength that you gave me. The strength so that I could rise from a victim of child abuse being beaten and downtrodden and all the things that for the next four decades that wrought in my life. But now to rise, to rise stronger than ever as you will it and you intend it. Almighty. Amen.